This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bobin Singh, the Executive Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I'm Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel at the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. For the past week or two, you've enjoyed um, listening to Beatrix interview some protesters in our series Talk to Stop Tear Gas Lighting Us. There's more uh, interviews coming, but um, we took a little bit of a pause to allow some space for those interviews to take prominence and be previewed. And um, we're going to pick back up with some uh, podcast episodes over the next few weeks. And we're going to be changing it up a little bit where we're going to have some staff uh, present for as guests, almost like permanent guests uh, of the episode uh, of the pod of the podcast to join us each week. So um, it'll be Zach Winston this week. He's the director of our policy and outreach. Um, on occasion, Juan will join us, and um, you know Eric will be back. He's currently busy in court this week, and then we'll be on vacation. I think for the next couple of weeks, then be back towards the end of June. Um, so we'll just kick it off and uh, start with some news items. And, you know, this podcast feels a little improvised today. It's almost like we're going to be building a plane while we're flying it. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Zach? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's never a great thing to do. At least this, uh, we don't have, uh, you know, 12,000 individuals uh, under our care and custody right now. So that's that's helpful. Yeah. Can you build a plane while you're flying it? I don't know. I mean, it's literally impossible to build a plane while you're flying, right? I mean, one, why would you ever do that? And then two, why would you use that metaphor? Or is it a, yeah, a metaphor? Why would, why would you use that? It seems like a ridiculous metaphor. And uh, I, this is kind of an inside joke, but Zach and I will get to like what we're referencing in just a second. But again, have you ever built a plane while flying it? I have not. Uh, I've flown a plane once. Um, I was not building it while flying it. Uh, it uh, no, it's it's a bad idea, uh, and I, I think it is impossible. Um, at least to at least at least to sustain. I guess maybe potentially you get it up there, and then it and then it comes down pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, not not possible. And if you met someone that was trying to build a plane while flying it. I- what would you think? I would think we're, uh, this person's not responsible or smart or, you know, not able to perform, uh, you know, basically like basic functions of living. Sorry, yeah, that, maybe a little, maybe a little harsh, but I'm just like, this metaphor to me seems like a ridiculous metaphor to be like putting out there. Yeah, it's concerning, especially if you're if you're viewing it as a positive, um, if you're, you know, championing the fact that you're building a plane while flying it. That's right. We're not talking about like this in a ridiculous way. We're actually referencing what Director Peters, uh, the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections, said um, or was it was referenced in testimony she was presenting in front of the judiciary or in front of the legislature a couple of weeks ago um, in which she was presenting about 
um, their response to COVID and then their response uh, to the wildfires in 2020 in which they had to do the largest evacuation Oregon, the largest population movement that occurred, like over 5,000 people were impacted by these evacuations. It was harmful, it was traumatic. Um, people experienced um, basically human rights violations. But I think the metaphor that was used, and remind me, Zach, was it Director Peters or was it like one of the legislators that actually used this? So, so DOC presented twice um, on that day. I can't remember what it was last week, but um, presented twice, once in front of um, the Veterans and Emergency Preparedness uh, Senate Committee um, in the morning, and then again in uh, House Judiciary in the afternoon. Uh, and so it was first referenced by a legislator, or first used by a legislator uh, in the, the morning meeting, the morning committee hearing, uh, and then uh, Director Peters, I believe, used it then in the, in the House Judiciary. Um, as a positive, yeah. like, you know, this positive. was such an emergency. This was such an unprecedented thing um, that, you know, we were building a plane while we were flying. And I, I had forgot that it was um, used in a, like, it, you know, like when you spin it around, because like when you, when I say it, I think it sounds absurd, but like, yes, it was used as a positive thing, like to explain something that they had to do. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll dissect and kind of break this down, like why this was an, an inappropriate metaphor. And I think, um, and not only inappropriate, but like, I think um, highlights why there needs to be more oversight of the Department of Corrections and a more sort of uh, legislative inquiry or interrogation about what's going on. But, um, you know, just to remind folks, like in 2020, the scale and scope of the wildfires in Oregon were unprecedented. Wildfires are now in Oregon a routine thing. Like it's not anything that um, is out of the norm. We expect it. These are things that we have to be prepared for. Um, people, unfortunately, and sadly, have to be prepared in certain parts of Oregon to evacuate. I mean, that that is just like the sort of normal course of life right now to have like a go bag, as they say. Um, there are communities that were devastated by the wildfires, and these are things that you know climate scientists and other people that are familiar with like weather patterns and climate patterns have said to us, these are gonna be regular parts of our, our year now. Um, to that end, like, you know, it, it's not as if like thinking about like evacuations or the impacts of wildfires was something that shouldn't have been thought about. You know, I mean, these are things that institutions, especially like an, an agency that has prisons all over the state, especially in remote areas, that we know that are gonna be impacted by wildfires should have a plan in place, should be thinking about like the worst possible outcomes or situations and not be forced into a situation and they're responding like in these emergent situations. Um, and even in these like unprecedented sort of scale and scope of it, I mean, I think the better metaphor would be is like, what you expect the agency to come to the legislature to say is like, look, we had a bunch of smaller planes in the hangar we were able to get those off, there were problems. You know, hey, legislature, what we need to do now is build a bigger plane in the interim so we can be prepared for these evacuations um, or for these wildfires or for these climate kind of disasters that we expect to happen. But for a legislature and for the director to come in and basically say, we're building a plane while uh, flying, it, it just shows, I don't know, to me, just like a lack of professionalism and an understanding of sort of like the times that we're in. 
And as you mentioned, they're in custody of over 12,000 people. So the life and liberty of these individuals are in their hands. Those individuals cannot do anything, have no agency in this situation. So that, that's just like sort of the background and context and obviously some of my commentary on it. But I don't know. Um, what do you think, Zach? Yeah, I was concerned. I mean, I, I, you know, for, I don't know if any of the listeners know, but I, I'm formerly incarcerated uh, years ago, but uh, in a different state, not Oregon. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think there's sometimes a, a, a lack of perspective or understanding about, you know, how little agency those who are incarcerated have. Um, you, you don't get any decision making power, um, but also you're not listened to. Um, so you can be uh, yelling and screaming that, you know, you, you, you don't have any food, you don't have access to resources, you don't have your medication. Um, and you're really at the whim of, you know, a correctional officer to listen to you um, and actually take it seriously and then to act on that. And, that, and that's, you know, extremely powerless uh, feeling. And so I think that's sometimes lost. I, I think also, you know, uh, the goal for DOC, I, I, I don't think, I mean, uh, shouldn't be just to keep AICs alive. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that the metric that can be used is that no AICs died. Which um, was a quote unquote absolute success. That was, that, that was how Colette Peters defined it. The fact that no one died um, was the, met, that was like, that, that was the metric they were using. That's what, how they defined absolute quote unquote absolute success. Yeah, which may be technically true for the wildfires, but it's not true for COVID. Um, and, and not to mention that we had a lawsuit that forced them to vaccinate AICs, um, you know, uh, when they were supposed to and not push it off, um, which probably had success or definitely played into, you know, fewer deaths. Um, but I, I think that, uh, right, I mean, for the wildfires specifically, um, you know, just and as an example for the, you know, one of the slides that was presented to the House Judiciary and also the Senate Veterans and Emergency Preparedness Committees, um, you know, areas of improvements for, for DOC, uh, one of the items is access to resources such as meals, water and hygiene. I mean, <laughs> I would hope that even the even the most basic of planning um, accounts for that. I think one of the most concerning things, and this is an issue that comes up, especially those of us who are formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated would, you know, know this, but medications are really difficult, right? So, um, you know, some medications, AIC, you know, adults in custody are allowed to have, some they're not. And I think one of the most concerning things I heard, I heard two concerning things, or two most concerning things. One was, um, you know, that the DOC forgot to remind AICs, adults in custody, to bring uh, their medications with them uh, in the first round of evacuations um, and, 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 and then realized that that was supposed to, um, you know, happen. And then in the subsequent follow-up, they, they did remind AICs to, to bring it. But again, that feels like just such a basic um, emergency planning, evacuation planning um, piece piece to, to mention. I think the other really concerning uh, comment that was made was around, um, you know, using community resources, right? So they were talking about the fact that they had, they didn't have enough transport buses in their fleet, in DOC's fleet. And so that they, um, you know, they had to kind of contract or get on board uh, the, the school, the district school bus drivers because the students were out of school. And the what, what Director Peters was saying was that essentially the school bus drivers decided that they didn't want to leave without each other. Right. So, the, you know, all these school bus drivers said we, we don't we won't leave without without all the other buses. And so when they loaded up the AICs for evacuation, if you were on that first bus, you were on a school bus. 
um, you know, with a bunch of other adults in custody, no freedom, no agency, no restrooms uh, in the heat uh, with the smoke um, and not able to move right until all the other buses were filled up. And that was really concerning um, to hear. So I, I just think that, um, you know, we have to have a higher standard than no one died. Uh, the, you know, when kids are in your custody, the standard isn't, are they alive? Um, and the law makes that very clear. So anyway, I think the only other thing I would flag, Bob, and feel free to, you know, take, you know, build on any of this. But I think the other thing that was concerned me was the lack of follow-up. I mean, the, you know, these, these hearings run, run late. And so if you're one of the last items, you just get sandwiched uh, between a, a hard stop, a hard end, uh, end point, and then also, um, you know, lack of time. And so you get 15 minutes to present. Legislators can't ask any questions. And so it's basically just assumed that anything that's said during the presentation, um, you know, is not going to be questioned. And that's really uh, an issue. And that happened in both committee hearings, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I think like the... Um... I think the thing that was most uh, hard for me to witness or see was the lack of honesty or transparency around it. Like, and I'm not saying from Director Peters necessarily, but as a state, like our lack of willingness to engage with the truth about what happened. You know, there were several thousand people that were moved. Uh, there were, you know, as many as five or 6,000 people that were impacted because we're talking about thousands of people that were moved from institutions and put into other prisons. So first you have like the conditions of the heat, you have the conditions of the smoke, you had people outside waiting to get on buses. And remember the air quality at that time, the particular matter was like extraordinarily high. Like they're the, basically the warnings was like, don't go outside. You cannot go outside. We, you know, the damage, like the particular, particular particulates that were in the air were of such high concentration that, you know, people were worried about, um, you know, long-term impacts on the lungs. Um, yeah, and as Beatrix just mentioned to me, it was like the most hazardous air in the world at that time. So people were standing outside in this. There's limited ventilation even in the institutions to begin with, but people were forced to stand outside in fields waiting for buses or when they got to the institutions, forced to wait in fields before they were able to get inside. The women were transported without any feminine hygiene products, without bathroom breaks. I mean, we heard terrible stories of individuals having to use the bathroom in front of COs, um, you know, terrible things happening on the bus rides. I mean, it was traumatic. I mean, if you actually ask the AICs that were involved in the move, like honestly, if, in a way that ensured, you know, that they weren't going to be retaliated against, they could speak openly and honestly, they would tell you that it was a disaster, that they basically experienced human rights, um, you know, violations. You know, you talk about the men, they ended up taking individuals from one institution that disassociated from gangs and put them in an institution that had all those gangs. So we heard about fights, retaliation, you know, people um, contaminating foods with biological and other type of materials so people couldn't eat. There were like um, politics around the bathroom. So like certain sort of gangs or people were preventing people from going to the bathrooms. There was no access to water. So people were like falling out in those like congregate settings. Uh, it was just terrible. People using the bathroom and trash cans. None of that was actually disclosed to the legislators as far as like the conditions in which people were living in and how they were treated. Um, and it was just like horrible. I mean, and there was no follow-up, like you said, or no interrogation of what was going on or like what was presented. And to me, that's like the real sort of disservice is like, one, we've been calling for an independent investigation uh, into like what happened because it's not about point at this point assigning blame to the Department of Corrections because I, they were wrong. They, how they handled this was just inappropriate and harmful. 
but how do we prevent this from happening in the future? Like as a state, if we care about our community members and like what happened, then our priority has to be really truly understanding like how it is that we prevent something like this from happening because we are gonna continue to hit more and more climate emergencies, whether it's like an earthquake, whether it's flooding, you know, whether it's more wildfires, like we are gonna have to deal with this reality. And if we're not prepared for it, we're gonna continue to put people, fellow Oregonians in, in harm's way. And to me, that was like the most like, distasteful thing about it and then to hear things like you know legislators complimenting Colette Peters um, and then using this silly metaphor or an analogy a metaphor right I always say metaphor analogy but like building yeah. a plane while you're flying it to me highlights the fact that we're not interrogating like what it is that we're saying because again the insanity of someone trying to build a plane while they're flying like if you even just think about that for a second it can't happen. It's the dumbest thing. It's, it is literally the dumbest thing someone can say, I think, um, about like doing responding to anything like you would never, ever, ever want anyone in that situation. And as a legislature, you don't want agencies to be put in that situation. So you need to set you need to set it up to like make sure that they're not ever in that situation again. And the legislature completely failed in that regard. Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the aspects, uh, you know, right after in the Senate and, and, and emergency preparedness, uh, veterans and emergency preparedness Senate committee, um, I think right after DOC was the, um, I think Department of Forestry or someone to talk about how wildfires are going to continue to happen. And we're, we're seeing, you know, extreme heat warnings and further uh, concerns for wildfires. And, and, and I, honestly, we were seeing that before 2020. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that this was unexpected or unprecedented. Um, I, I think that uh, th those are not um, necessarily reasons to, to be unprepared. Um, no. And not, not appropriate excuses. So, I mean, the Department of Corrections needs to have emergency plans at this point for all types of climate emergencies um, and other types of emergencies as well. Like it just seems like a core responsibility of the agency at this point. Like, and it seems ne negligent not to be, not to have those things in place. Um, I think but, also one of the other issues that you touched on that we, we continuously to, at the OJRC continue to, to, to push back on is the lack of AIC testimony. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a lot of these issues in front of the legislature, you oftentimes have the impacted group allowed to uh, testify. Um, you know, if it's a bill related to nursing, for example, um, you have a bunch of nurses come in and testify and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's a common occurrence. Um, but with AICs, they're not allowed to come in and tell their side of the story. I mean, one, there's a concern about whether they're gonna be retaliated against if they if they were even to show up and, and provide testimony. But two, there's just DOC just flat out not allowing AI, you know, adults in custody I mean, to testify. And it's more than that. I mean, as a society and as a legislature, they just don't care. I mean, they honestly do not care about this population. Um, there's no evidence to support that the majority of legislators or I know there are some, like, you know, some that we work with that do care and are trying to like make positive changes, but the vast majority just don't care. You know, they believe into like this myth and stereotypes that these are bad people. They don't deserve to be considered as like humans or members of a community. Um, and they basically deserve how they're, you know, like the, the bad things that happen to them. I mean, they deserve to be in cages and like whatever they're, we have to prioritize, you know, people on the outside and treat them, you know, make sure that they're taken care of before we even care or even think about like people on the inside. And it's a toxic, it's a toxic cultural like value system that's existed based on 
you know, white supremacy, racism dominating in these populations. And, you know, um, this is the result that we get is, you know, like basically human rights catastrophe and then legislators literally uh, air clapping for them um, and saying that, you know, no one died we're good. (laughs) Right. And also wondering why recidivism rates are are where they're at. Um, I mean, I think, you know, for every, you know, day that AICs are stuck, um, you know, just trying to survive, um, they're not preparing for release. They're not uh, better, you know, continuing to advance, um, you know, their education or or whatever they're working towards their skills. Um, And so I think that's, you know, it's just a really odd um, way to approach things because the, the worse you treat people while they're in prison, um, the, the less likely they are to succeed uh, when, when they're out. I mean, I, I think as a formerly incarcerated individual and the OJRC has a number of uh, formerly incarcerated individuals on staff. Uh, and we've, we've all talked about the fact that the, the harsher you are and the, the, you know, not providing basic human uh, rights or, you know, protections, it's just not a is not a good um, model for for reducing recidivism rates and preparing uh, you know the ninety five percent of AICs that are going to be returning to the community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it was like it, it was consistent what we've seen in the past as far as like how DOC is treated with the legislature and the and how the legislature is basically um, hands off and deferential to the Department of Corrections. Um, and we hope to change, you know, uh, that dynamic and, you know, try to do what we can to hold the Department of Corrections um, accountable. But I think it's also that we have to hold legislators up to a higher standard and expect more from them and help them be better under- educated about like what's going on. And like I said, there are a handful of legislators that are, you know, very supportive of the work that we do, you know, believe us, believe like the AICs that are there communicating with about their experiences. And I think it's just unfortunate uh, uh, an intentional design of the system that the legislature at this point um I, I think it's more of a cultural design doesn't feel like that they have the ability to really check doc I, I don't believe that to be true but you know i think it's just they think that they can't you know interrogate or question the assumptions or um you know the the things that are being told by doc yeah, I mean, there's also argument that the executive branch um, could be doing something more to to enhance oversight and demand, um, you know, well, change necessary changes. Now you're teasing a future conversation because I think, like, uh, in the next week or two, we will talk a little bit about, you know, the Department of Corrections and sort of um, and the and the position that they sit in because this is a problem because at this point. There's no branch of government, local branch of government that actually provides oversight of Department of Correction. Legislature doesn't, the executive doesn't, and the state judiciary doesn't. There's no mechanisms for them, like explicit mechanisms that allow for oversight. Even though each branch of government has the ability to do it, they don't do it on their own discretion right now. So what ends up happening is you have an agency that literally has no oversight, like there's no oversight of like what happens in the agency except through the federal courts through litigation, which is limited in its own right. And I, you know, OJ, uh, the Department of Corrections uh, exploits that, you know, and, you know, other bodies like the legislature, which you see is basically like, well, that's not our problem. Executive, well, not our problem. State judiciary, no, well, not our problem. We can't do anything. Everybody's sort of just saying, you know, our hands are tied. We, we're limited in what we can do. So what ends up happening, you have a Department of Correction that cages literally thousands of people. 
um, engages in um, practices of solitary confinement and other types of like uh, uh, what we know by international law to be violations of human rights. Um, and there's no way to check like how those things are happening, um, to whom they're happening to, and for those people that are that are harmed by um, the Department of Corrections for them to actually get um, avenues or access to meaningful release from any branch of government. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing when you think about it. Yeah, well, and especially to, you know, this reminds me um, of a, a leak that came out with the executive team, the DOC executive team uh, presentation or, you know, communication with a, a a, con a, cons a consultant's report that came out that, um, you know, one of the things that came, you know, was leaked in this PowerPoint was that, you know, DOC saying that advocates are no longer our friends. Um, and, you know, I, I think I can comment much broader on that. I don't know that we have enough time for that. But um, I think that one of the, the issues is, is that advocates are really the only thing standing between uh you know, AIC is just being completely discarded, essentially, and and, and ignored, um, and and them surviving and and being able to um, be guaranteed the human you know dignity and rights that they're that that, that they're entitled to. Um, so anyway, I think I don't know if you want to go into that deeper, but I just think that that was just such a, a line that I saw. You know, the DOC specifically said that um, advocates aren't going to be DOC's friends unless they're working towards actual reform. I think that there are, you know, we would be happy to engage in meaningful reforms with, with DOC. You see with OIA, the Oregon Youth Authority, um, who are at least open to, to, to discussing, um, you know, effective and evidence-based reforms and actually implementing them. Um, but when you can just show up to a legislative committee hearing and, you know, give a presentation, never, never be questioned on it, never be questioned by anyone else. Uh, and the only way that you're held accountable is to file, uh, is for advocates to file um, lengthy, expensive, uh, difficult, um, you know, federal lawsuits. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's an untenable situation and, and it's not going to, it's not going to do anything good for this, for the system. Yeah. And I think, you know, your point is important one. And I think, you know, I don't know if people really know that we actually had a good relationship with the Department of Corrections prior to COVID in the sense that for our annual Women in Prisons Conference, the Department of Correction allowed women who are currently incarcerated to come and participate in the conference as panelists. You know, they would come and they would be able to present and share their stories about like what was going on. Um, prior to COVID, I was going into the or Oregon State Correctional Institute every week on Fridays to meet with a group of juvie lifers and I'd work, been working with them for almost two years. And we were bringing in public officials, legislators, judges, people from the governor's office for a very intense, like facilitated conversations, for conversations about policies. We had started developing this innovative peer support group that would allow people transferring out of OIA into the adult institutions to be mentored by people in custody in the adult prisons and potentially come into OSCI, you know, with some support and community like help with jobs and things like that. And the Department of Corrections was supportive of it. They were actually helping do that. We had our legal aid or legal services at Coffee Creek um, through the Women's Justice Project. You know, they had been supportive of that program and actually created space for us in those in Coffee Creek to work out of. Um, so we had positive relationships with them. We were doing like uh, work with them. And the idea was we could keep pushing and developing like these innovative things and helping create, um, you know, more transparency. And there was, there was seemingly like overlap in a desire of wanting to do things differently and you know our approach was to try to do that like try to engage in a positive way 
when COVID hit, we, we reached out to the Department of Corrections multiple times asking for, here are issues that are coming up. We'll work with you to develop plans. We'll work with you to like think about ideas about ensuring people's safety and health. Immediately when COVID came, the Department of Corrections basically just shut down and brushed us all off and was like, you know, giving us like standard talking points, basically um, with no substance or depth, no real transparency or explanation of what was going on. And then all the things that, that we saw sort of as like the progress of the Department of Corrections prior to COVID, you know, it was, there was no risk to them for doing it like at that point. Um, what ended up happening and what I've seen like even with law enforcement and other things when COVID hit uh, and across other uh, social sectors, those instincts that are sort of buried within our society, like around sort of, again, like white supremacy, racism, all those things, they just kicked in. Like people were in survival mode and they just sort of fell back on what I, I could only describe as their instincts. And what we saw was incredible amount of like confusion and harms being perpetrated within the Department of Corrections and across society. I mean, it was crazy. Like all our worst instincts were exacerbated or highlighted or exacerbated. Like we're not, you know, initially like in our community, like we were taking care of each other, people staying home, you know, like community support. It was this idea like, okay, we're all, we're all in this together and we have to get through it. But then it just became like this ridiculous, like political thing, like whether it was like this idea of mask mandates and vaccines and like, was COVID real? You know, like all that entered in. And we saw the Department of Corrections as well. Like half the DOC staff, I don't even think believe COVID was a real thing or anything like that. But again, they were using like solitary in these like incredibly crazy ways. And, you know, we weren't gonna sit on the sidelines and be like, okay, just because we had this positive relationship prior to COVID, we're not gonna, like, even though we tried to engage in sort of non-adverse ways before becoming adverse. And they, again, they just kind of brushed us off. We weren't gonna, we're not, we weren't gonna sit by and allow these harms to continue or to exist. So, you know, and that's what put us in these adverse situations with all these entities, whether it's the city or the state, because, you know, it just, it just, it was just like this weird thing. It was just like the worst instincts of our society just took over. Um, and what that was is just like the dominate control exacerbate like all the different sort of inequities that existed you know it was like everyone trying to get theirs protect theirs and that kind of stuff yeah and i think you know one of the things at least you know for the ojrc is we're not just going to sit back and allow things to happen without taking action and and if if doc isn't going to um work with us to take action then we're going to take action however we can um to protect the aics um and and others in the community and so um you know i just you know to the extent possible the ojrc isn't here to be friends with with doc we're here to hold them accountable ask for transparency um and to to just make sure that those who uh, don't have a voice um, are, are given some agency and given uh, an avenue. And, and one of the things that we can do when, when DOC is uh, preventing AICs from uh, testifying, for example, uh, truthfully and honestly, and even showing up at committee hearings mm -hmm. is to be the voice for those uh, AICs. And, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, when, when we're talking about impacted groups, I think a, current AICs and former AICs are essentially one group. I mean, the former AICs can talk to, you know, can talk a little bit more freely about what, what was, you know, experienced while incarcerated. And so, um, 
yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. We're going to, we're going to continue to push uh, and make sure that people are held accountable. I mean, unapologetically, I mean, like the whole goals prior to COVID was about ensuring people were treated with dignity and trying to mitigate the harms that were being uh, perpetrated against them. For that moment, DOC was okay with us, like working on those issues, because again, there was no risk to them in allowing us to do that work. After COVID, there was a risk because basically what we were saying is people need to be treated fairly and humanely, and they weren't okay with that because what that meant at that point was um, uh, uh, a reallocation of power. And it, because like prior to COVID, they weren't really giving up power. And like after COVID, I think we saw this with law enforcement as well, especially after the George Floyd uh, murder, we really started talking about power inequities and how these power inequities have existed and persisted and how they create harms and the community demanding that there be a recalibration of these power dynamics. And what you see is, you know, the powers that be don't wanna give up power. I mean, they, they, they're not gonna give it up and they fight tooth and nail, they gaslight, manipulate, lie, um, you know, pretty much everything, vilify, demonize people who are asking for those, that recalibration. And, you know, we saw that um, across all these sort of law enforcement and carceral systems, you know, throughout the, the pandemic and even currently. And we're seeing that pushback, like that extreme sort of pushback right now where, you know, uh, we didn't get to talk about it, but, you know, Chessa's recall in San Francisco was, you know, a, an example of that. And, you know, uh, and, you know, what we're seeing is like the tough on crime rhetoric, like we saw it with some of the DAs here um, and with the Republicans in the state legislature. But, that's essentially what we're talking about. We're not talking about community well-being or public safety. We're talking raw power, you know. Yeah, and 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 quickly, the the they all work in concert, you know, at, at times, right? So I think one of the things we didn't get to talk about was uh, right before the DOC went, um, the Oregon State Police uh, Superintendent testified uh, in front of the committee and. Um, you know, even cited the media's reports of increased crime. Well, our crime, our primer on that that we've released uh, debunks that myth. Um, and, and, and I think that's really, you know, concerning when, when the media writes something and then public officials are then, uh, you know, um, uh, citing it um, as a reason to, to act on certain policies. It reminds me of what happened in the early 2000s where you wouldn't, when the country went to war with Iraq, for you know weapons of mass destruction and basically dick cheney was you know leaking stuff to the press and then he was citing those articles and those leaks right. to legislators and like the media as proof that there's something happening you know and it's the exact same thing it's like you have law enforcement putting out like this um you know false messaging and gaslighting and sort of like this hyperbole around like crime rates media is reporting it, then you have the same law enforcement officer citing that back, you know, yeah, to legislators. Yeah, it's, two it's public officials, right? Yeah. You know, two to the elected officials. Um, yeah, it's 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 dangerous. I mean, we're, we've seen the effects of it for at least since 2016, for sure. I mean, as you mentioned, it goes goes further back than that. But um, mm -hmm. just the the constant erosion and, and, and uh, of norms. Yeah, well, we end up spending most of today talking about the Department of Corrections, and you know, it's probably worthy of many more hours. As usual. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I do think like the things that we talked about were important because, you know, I think one of the focuses for OJRC over the upcoming months is how to surface sort of um, these hard truths and get them out in front of 
the public in front of public officials and no longer allow um, public officials who are presenting a sanitized version or misleading version of what happened to be able to um, continue to continue to operate that way. So, you know, um, you know, it, it is going to be hard work, but we have a great team that's dedicated and committed to like that work. And yeah, I mean, as you can already see this past week, our, our communications team put out, you know, infographics highlighting, you know, the this this misleading and sort of sanitized version that Colette Peters put out. So um yeah um i know we you have to go zach but uh thanks for joining us uh this morning and we'll be back next week uh, maybe with a guest maybe not i don't know we'll see what happens um but uh thanks for listening to trailblazing justice we'll see you next week Thanks for listening. This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob Singh. And I'm Eric Teacher. Yeah.